Well, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, open up with me to Philippians 4. Philippians 4. Um, it's good to be home. Uh, I had a first for myself a few weeks ago. Uh, I got invited to speak to a youth camp, which was awesome. I get the opportunity to do that every summer a couple of different times. But this time, it was a youth camp down in Florida. And so they flew us down to speak at a camp for a week, and I suffered for Jesus and preached the Lord. And we saw kids get saved and called the ministry and just set free from some sinful things that they were just dealing with. It was just, it was awesome. And so I'd preach the gospel, walk like two minutes, and I was at the ocean. And I'm like, thank you, Lord. I think I finally arrived. So today, if you, uh, in Philippians chapter four, uh, we're going to be just a quick message that I wrote about three months ago. And I've been sitting on this, waiting for a free week in order to be able to share this. And so we've taken a break from Romans for several weeks now. And we're going to be starting a series next week for three or four weeks called Listen, um, where how do I hear God's voice? How does God speak to me? We've got too many folks in our culture these days of God told me this, God said that, and they don't know how to verify or back that up. Or making how do I make major life decisions and know exactly what God wants me to do and what, what he wants my family to to do. And so I'm going to be sharing a little bit about recently some decisions my family's had to make and how God clearly spoke to us in eight different ways. And I want to share those with you and share um, tools from the scriptures on how do I know with absolute clarity what God is saying to me and what decisions he wants me to make. But, and then after that, we're going to be doing a series called Headlines, where we're going to address headlines in the news and some of just the stuff that the culture is dealing with and how do Christians respond to all of that. And then we're going to end up back in Romans eventually. But I wrote this message a few months ago, and I've just been sitting on it, waiting for a free week in order to share this with our church. And so um, I hope this is applicable for us today, and I hope this is helpful. But this is something that the Lord has been putting on my heart, and it's part of the reason that I wrote this, and I hope that it encourages you. As well. So if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's word, Philippians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 2 through 7. And God's word says this It says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co workers whose names are in the book of life. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice, and let your graciousness be made known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I haven't preached in two weeks, so let's roll, let's pray. God, we love you. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gathering of the local church. Father, we pray now as we walk through these verses together, would your spirit be among us? Teach us, mold us, and shape us into the image of Jesus. God, that's why we're here is because we want to be more like Christ. So Lord, would you give us open ears in this moment, setting aside anything that may be distracting us, that may be on our minds. May we solely focus on you today. And God, would you give us soft hearts and willing and obedient hands and feet, Lord, not just to hear, but to receive your word and then walk it out as we pursue Jesus the rest of our week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, most of you are fully aware of this because many of you know me. If you don't, that's okay. But I am the father of two girls. 
Um, one, Sophia, who's 10 years old, Colby, who's five years old. Many of you know them. Being the father of girls is a pretty fun job. But I've made an observation over the last 10 years of parenting girls that I think many of you are going to sympathize with, or hopefully you do. If you don't have kids yet, you better buckle up because it's not as fun as I'm pretending it is, okay? But most kids in general, when they're first born, they just have some very basic needs that they need met. For example, when children are first born, they need to eat. Children need to sleep. They need their diapers changed. They need attention. But outside of those things, I'm sure we could add a couple more in there, but outside of those, it doesn't seem like babies need much more than that. And here's an interesting observation. They don't really have opinions on life at that point. They just want their needs met. But then something happens. Those children grow older. And they reach a point where they're roughly four or five years old, and they go from not really having an opinion about anything, just needing basic needs met, and suddenly at four or five years old, they wake up one day, and they know everything about everything. Some of y'all with four and five-year-olds, you're like, yes, please, preach, right? Pastor, bring it on, right? Out of nowhere, the kid wakes up one day, and they passionately care about what they eat. They passionately care about when they sleep or if they sleep. Anybody got an amen for that? They passionately care about not learning to use the toilet and staying in their diapers because suddenly something happens at about four to five years old where they have an opinion about life and things change. Here's the correlation. Hear my heart here. Say this from a position of love. This is just a reality that we are experiencing, have experienced as a church. If there's one thing I've learned in the last four years of church planting is that that same growth correlation of a child reaching the toddler phase is the same correlation that we see in the life of a church. That's why I've titled today's message this idea of growing pains. Because when you first start a church, some of you were with us in those early years, it's very exciting. People are eager to get involved. Even though we met in a middle school that was 110 degrees and smelled like skunks most Sundays, people were excited to get involved, willing to do anything and everything. And although in the early days of starting a church, it's very hard and difficult, at the same time, in a very strange dynamic, it's also simultaneously fun. But then you reach about four to five years old, which is where we are. And all of a sudden, as your church starts to get new people, as the organization starts to get more grounded and formed, as your church ages, all of a sudden, opinions start to form. All of a sudden, quote, traditions set in. All of a sudden, what happens is we become comfortable with the organization that is living hope, comfortable with one another as family, and if we aren't careful, and here's my point for today, we can allow our opinions and our traditions to cause us to sacrifice the mission that Jesus has called us to, to help people find and follow Jesus. You see, when something is alive and moving, it has a natural tendency to focus inward. And if you don't force it to focus outward, we can become so concerned with what happens in here ensuring that my opinions, traditions, and preferences are met, that I forget why Jesus called us to start this thing in the first place. Did you know 
I always like to say this because sometimes people get irritated and then they email Joe about it. This church doesn't exist for you at all. This church exists for two other people, the person sitting next to you and the person not here yet. That's why Living Hope exists. It's not for me and it's not for you. It's for the person that's in that seat next to you. It's for that person that's watching online right now. It's for the person that is going to listen on the radio next week. That's why this church exists. And I don't ever want us to sacrifice the mission that God has called us to. So here's what uh, questions the Lord has been um, really mulling in my spirit. And I think we answer them here in Philippians 4. Um, What does it take for a church to really actually stay together and not allow opinions, traditions, and preferences to tear us apart? How do we stay focused on the mission of helping people find and follow Jesus? How do we stay one? You guys remember in John 15 when Jesus prayed? That was one of the main thrusts of the Lord's prayer before He exited earth back into heaven. Lord, that they would remain one. Why? Because the tendency is to not remain one. The tendency of the human heart is to be so concerned about myself and my own preferences that I don't worry about other people. Yet Jesus established the church for His glory and the good of the person next to you and the person not here yet. It's why the church was established. So let's look at our our passage here in Philippians. This letter, by way of reminder, Paul is writing from house arrest. Two years ago, we studied verse by verse through the book of Philippians for over 20 weeks in a series we called Joyful. And what's interesting is this is the one section of Scripture that we didn't cover in that series. And there was a reason. It's because we did like a five-week series on mental health, and we utilized a lot of the passages here in this. So we're going to cover this today. So Paul, under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, and he pushes these Philippian believers. He says, regardless of your circumstances, maintain an attitude of joy. Regardless of what is going on around you, you maintain an attitude of joy. If you go back to chapter 1 in Philippians, you see that entire chapter is about advancing the gospel mission, helping people find and follow Jesus. Chapter 2, after he talks about advancing the gospel, is all about remaining humble, taking on the attitude of Christ Jesus, that of humility. Then in chapter 3, he says it again, don't lose sight of the mission that God has called you to. And now in chapter 4, he gets super practical with this church. And he says, focus on the mission. Remain humble. Focus on the mission. And the last thing I got to tell you, stay together. Be one. Stay united together. So practical application, if you're a note taker, what are things that we can do as a local church, as Living Hope Columbus, um, to make sure that we stay united and focused on mission when everything around us wants to derail what Jesus wants to do through us? Three things. Point number one is this. So simple. Be united. Be united. Verses two and, and three. Again, we said up to this point, much of the tension that Paul is addressing in this letter to this church has centered around two things, false teachers and doctrinal error. These things that were being brought into this church in Philippi. But now he shifts the message a little bit in chapter 4, and as he's talking about unity in this church, it's no longer this fight against doctrinal tension anymore, but it's relational tension. Anybody ever been in a fight with somebody else in the church where you just can't stand each other? (laughs) Yeah. Some of y'all probably don't even like each other today. That's why you're sitting on opposite sides of the room, right? Let's just call a spade a spade. Relationships in Philippi were being severed. 
And by all indication, according to Paul's verses here that he wrote in this letter, um, people were actually forming these little factions and these little cliques, and they were not focusing on the mission that Jesus had called them to, that Paul had spent three chapters writing about. Peace, oh golly, people were allowing personal preference to overshadow mission that God had called them to. And Paul says, stop it. I mean, it's so simple. You'd understand this as well. I wrote this in my notes because I really want us to hear this. As our church continues to age and mature, one of the greatest threats that we have to constantly guard against and fight against is relational tension in the context of Living Hope Columbus. If, oh my goodness, if the devil can get us divided, he can destroy us, period. If the devil can divide our relationships, separate us into different factions and camps, hands down, 100% of the time, he will be able to destroy this church. If he can sever our unity, he can destroy our mission. I'm telling you, we just have to be so careful. And look at what Paul does in verse 2. He calls out two people over this. I love this. Look at this. He says, I urge two women, Euodia and I urge Syntyche. I have to imagine that when this letter was delivered to Philippi, that this was an incredibly awkward moment for that church. I mean, imagine typically what would happen is Paul would write these letters. These letters would be delivered to these churches. And then whoever was the pastor, the elder, someone, the leader of that church, they would take that letter. They would stand up before the congregation and they would say something like, Paul wrote us this letter. Here's what it said. And they would just read through that letter. Imagine that church in that moment that they hear in chapter one of Paul's letter, the importance of not sacrificing the mission. They hear the importance of calling out false teachers in the church. They hear the importance of humility and the call to elevate the gospel message. And then Paul gets about, or the reader of that church in Philippi gets about three quarters of the way through the letter. And he says, I urge Euodia. And he stares at her. And I urge Syntyche two women sitting on two opposite sides of the church. And what's he say? Quit. Stop it. Agree in the Lord. I mean, I don't know what the tension that these two ladies had and the factions that they began to form, but Paul's plea to them was what in verse 2? Stop fighting. Start agreeing. Set aside your differences. Set aside your opinions. Set aside your preferences and get focused again on the mission of helping people find and follow Jesus. In your Bible, if you have a hard copy, circle that word agree. Underline it, circle it, highlight it, whatever it does for you. That word is such a beautiful word. It means to live in harmony together. Meaning Paul is telling them, um, despite the differences that you apparently have over whatever issue this was, choose to work together. Because at some point you already did. If you go back to Acts chapter 16, when the church in Philippi was first founded, it was likely that Euodia and Syntyche were part of the founding of that church, that they were some of the early team members of that church plant, establishing what now 10 years later is known as the church in Philippi in this letter. Because look at what he says in verse 3. He says, I, I ask you, true partner, to help these women, Euodia and Syntyche, who, who have, they used to. To do what? They contended for the gospel at my side. Euodia and Syntyche and Clement and the rest of the co-workers who were followers of Jesus. So as Paul writes the church in Philippi, that true partner, just side note, was probably Luke, 
most people believe. He says, Luke, please get these ladies back together and help them agree again in the gospel. Because at one point, they contended together for what Jesus had called them to do. That word contended, again, if you're an underliner or a highlighter in your Bible, it means that they labored for the gospel together. That Euodium and Syntyche at one point had strived and fought for the gospel side by side, arm in arm, pushing the mission together. Again, the word contended, it's used two times in the New Testament, right here in Philippians 4 and also in Philippians 1.27. Two times in the entire New Testament. It's this idea of, again, fighting for the gospel, not letting anything distract you from the mission. And every time it's used, it's done in the context of community. It's this idea that as Christians, we don't, we don't advance the gospel alone. Christianity is not a solo sport, it's a team sport. We need one another. It's why we get involved in the local church. And Paul says, guys, stop fighting. Stop letting this stuff distract you. Agree in the Lord again and contend for the gospel. We want to push back darkness in Northwest Columbus and and move things forward through the Finding Hope Center. What's the lesson? We need one another. We got to make the, the, we've got to make the effort now while we're still young to not allow all these other things to distract us, personal preference and tradition and all this other stuff from the gospel mission. We can get so wrapped up in things that only concern ourselves that we miss God's activity around us because we can't see past our tip of our nose. Let's not lose sight of what God is doing. Paul tells him, be united. Here's the second thing that Paul reminds him. You want to stay together first. Make sure you're united above everything else. Secondly, be joyful. Be joyful. Verse 4. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again, rejoice. We said in the beginning, Paul's writing this under house arrest, essentially from jail. And it's that reminder, maybe you've heard this before, happiness is dependent upon my circumstances, but joy is dependent upon the posture of my heart. Why does Paul encourage these believers to be joyful? Because he's just spent three chapters reminding them that following Jesus, if done biblically, is not easy. That there's a contending for the gospel that must take place if you choose to stand for truth. And it will cost you something. You will have to sacrifice for the mission of Jesus. Following Jesus is a sacrificial lifestyle that costs you something and it will be met with hostility. You could even, again, just a silly illustration, go on Facebook today and just like put a Bible verse on there without the Bible reference. I guarantee you, probably within six hours, people are going to comment, that's hateful, that's hate speech, what's wrong with you? We just live in that culture right now, where truth is met with hostility, and following Jesus, if done biblically, is not easy. And Paul says that when the circumstances around us seem to be pressing in, that's what was going on in Philippi, you can either choose to take a heart attitude of defeat or a heart attitude of joy. It's the choice we have as a Christian. I can sit, soak, sour, and stink in my own defeat, or I can actually rejoice in the Lord knowing that my salvation is secure. Notice that. Underline that in your Bible, verse 4. Paul doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. He doesn't say rejoice in how you feel. He doesn't say rejoice in anything else. What does he say rejoice in? Rejoice in the Lord. That word Lord, again, underlined right next to it, means master, boss. What's the importance there? It's that when I follow Jesus, 
man, we need to hear this. The gospel is not like follow Jesus and then just do whatever the heck you want, by the way. The gospel is follow Jesus and he's the boss now. Yeah, but I want to do this. Then he's not the Lord of your life yet, right? Romans 10, he has to become Lord of your life. Lord means master and boss. And if Jesus truly becomes the master of my life, that means, it's important, that I fixate all aspects of my life on Jesus. Christianity is not a a Sunday thing, right? It's not just like a football event that we go to Sunday from 10.15 to 11.15. That's when I do the Jesus thing. No, no, no. It's it's all the time. It's that Jesus permeates every aspect of my thought life. Jesus permeates every aspect of my marriage, of my family, of my job, of my hobbies. Everything centers around Jesus. Why? Because he's Lord. If Jesus is not Lord of all, you've heard this before, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all period. It's either 100% or none at all. Jesus has to be Lord. And Paul says that if Jesus is my Lord, I fixate all aspects of my life on Him. And when my eyes are on Jesus, here we go, I can choose to be joyful. Here's the tendency of the human heart. I'm speaking to myself. It's what God's been teaching me. The tendency of my heart, I did it this morning, is to choose frustration. The tendency of my heart is to choose criticism. The tendency of my heart is to choose discontentment, especially as as church life progresses and matures. That's the tendency of our hearts to do that because here's the reality, that year one serving in the church was fun and it was joyful and we loved it. Year four, it can be a little much because, man, I I have to serve again the, the church isn't, man, we, we've invested so much time and energy and effort. How come God is not growing the church like I think it should? Um, how come I have to work in kids' ministry again this week? And we can do all of these things and we can become discontented and we can become frustrated and we can become critical of the local church. And Paul says, stop it. Choose joy. You don't have to choose criticism. You don't have to choose frustration. You don't have to choose discontentment because your eternity has been sealed by the Spirit of God through the sacrifice of the Son of God. You have the opportunity to choose joy. Watch this. You want to know how to choose joy real quick? You ready? This is the simplest thing you can do. Try it on a Sunday. You ready for it? This will be so simple. We teach this to our toddlers. You ready? Smile. Some of y'all look like you just had a perpetual funeral when you come to church. I mean, you look like your grandma died every Sunday you come in. It's like she's in the trunk of your car and you got to go bury her once church is over. Good Lord, smile more. My mom used to tell me, you don't smile more, your face is going to get stuck like that. You imagine going to the throne room of heaven, you walk up to Jesus, he says, what the heck's wrong with your faith? Your face is upside down. Whew. We can choose joy. I don't have to be discontent. I don't have to be frustrated. Because I'm going to heaven, and this organization doesn't exist for me. i got to serve in kids' ministry again. Who cares? It's not about me. i got to go and open the door for people. Who cares? It's not about me. If you want a church that's about you, this isn't the one for you. That's one of the reasons that I'm so grateful. You know that majority of churches in America, and this isn't a dog. I know there's churches significantly bigger than we are that do significantly more than we do. I don't care. 
God's doing a miracle here, and I'm pretty excited about it. But listen to this. You know most churches, 10 to 20% of the people do 100% of the work. Last numbers that Joe and I ran, we have almost 85 to 90% of adults in this church that serve in some capacity in a given month. Let's choose joy. We get to. I don't come here for me. I come here for the person next to me and the person that's not here yet. Choose joy. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, let your graciousness be made known to everyone. The Lord is near. Because when you choose joy, there's a posture that your heart now takes in the church family. And it's this posture, underline that word, of graciousness. I did a little research on this word a few months ago, and here's what's interesting. From the Greek to the English, we don't have a direct translation of that word graciousness. Graciousness is as close as we can get in the English language. There's not a direct translation because that word in the Greek that we translate graciousness, I want you to write this in your margin or above it, actually means um, to think grace. That's what it means. And so to translate it directly in the English wouldn't really make sense. It means to think grace. So here's, if we were to translate it directly, here's what it would look like. Let your think grace be known to everyone. What does that mean? It means that in every situation in the life of living hope, think grace. Choose joy, and as a result, think grace. It's the embodiment of Philippians 2, where where Paul says it's not about you. Humble yourself, because it's about other people. We gather, not for Aaron, not for Joe, not for you. We gather to serve Jesus primarily and to worship Him because He's good And we're joining the choruses of angels in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4. But we also gather to be grace givers to those in the context of our church. We overflow grace to those we gather with. Did you know you can't be critical and grace-filled at the same time? Doesn't work. (laughs) Shocker. You can't be discontented and joyful at the same time. Doesn't work. James talks about it with the tongue, but I think we can apply it here. Fresh water and salt water can't come from the same spring, can they? You get one or the other. You get joy or discontentment. You get grace or criticism, but you don't get both. And here's the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God and the followers of Jesus. We choose which one we overflow. We get to choose those things. Why do we do it? Verse 5, what's Paul say? We think grace, why? Because the Lord is near. What does that mean for us? Jesus is coming back, and we don't have time to play games. Jesus is coming back, and so who cares what color the carpet is? Jesus is coming back. Who gives a rip that there's holes in the wall from VBS? Because Jesus is coming back. I don't want to argue about nonsense. There's some important things that we need to talk about in the church. Don't hear me, hear, hear me wrong on that. But we're not going to argue about little, petty, nonsensical things in the context of living hope. Why? Because the Lord is near. And Jesus is coming back. And we have the duty and the responsibility to make heaven one more person full than we did last week. That's why we exist. We don't have time to fight. We don't have time to criticize. We don't have time to be discontent. We have a mission to engage with. And it starts with a strong local church. Want to change the culture of a church? Choose joy. Smile. Too much is at stake for you and I and for the world around us. What's his last encouragement? We're almost done. Paul says to be prayerful. Be prayerful. 
Imagine being in Philippi and Paul's writing to you about this threat of false teachers, cultural pushback, division within your church, so many different things. And what's the natural default when we hear all of this stuff? You do it and I do it, everybody does it. We have a tendency to worry. And in the church, the same mindset can come in here. Lord, what about this? What if this? What if this is going to happen? Lord, what if they do this? What are they going to say about us? But what does Jesus tell us through the Apostle Paul? Verse 6, do not worry about anything. I want you to write above that. I want you to underline it. I want you to write these words. That's a direct command. One of the biggest lessons I've had to learn in the last four years, in the last four weeks, in the last four hours is that when I worry, I'm in blatant disobedience to Jesus Christ. Because why? Because He told me specifically, do not worry. And when I choose to worry, you know that? Worry is a choice, by the way. Worry is a choice. When I choose to worry, I'm disobedient to Jesus because He said, don't do it. Here's the beautiful thing about it. Matthew chapter 6, you can turn there if you want to. Worry doesn't accomplish anything. You know Jesus knew that we would worry. And He tells us in Matthew 6, Lord, this is His sarcastic moment, all right? Jesus had a few of these. He says, um, uh, does worry make you taller? No, it doesn't. He says, does worry make you live any longer? No, it actually probably makes you live shorter. I'm not a doctor, but you could take that as medical advice, maybe. If you worry, you're not going to live longer. You're not going to get taller. It does none of those things. But listen to this, and this is important here. When we choose to worry about things that are completely out of our control, P.S., everything's out of your control. Control is a false sense of reality that we like to think we possess. Everything's out of your control. You say, well, I feel pretty safe and secure here. This roof could fall in any second. We would all die. That's just the way it works. When we choose to worry, we're allowing ourselves to think that we're in control of things that we're not, and that we're in more control of our lives than Jesus is, and we're not. And Paul reminds us in this passage that worry, if we're not careful, can actually serve as a catalyst for disunity and joylessness in a church. Because we're always, worry typically is self-absorbed and self-consuming. And so I'm only concerned about the things that matter to me, which is why I'm worried about them. And Paul says, just, just stop it. Instead, do what? Pray. Here's another side note for us. Did you know that worry and prayer can't coexist? That is literally impossible to worry about something and be prayerful about it at the same time. You can't do it. It's impossible. What's Paul saying? Verse 6, you pray from a posture of thanksgiving. Lord, this is heavy on my heart. Lord, this is man, Lord, this is just weighing on me. But I believe your scripture says that you are sovereign over all things. Therefore, I choose to trust you because you love me and you are in full control. And Paul says that when a church becomes a praying church rather than a worrying church, there's a peace present that can't be explained. That's actually this word um, in verse 7. Um, it's a picture of a, a Roman garrison that surrounded a city that peace that surpasses understanding. So just imagine just hundreds upon thousands of, Romans of gu Roman guards surrounding a city to protect it. You know what that means? It means nothing's going to get in that's not allowed to get in. You see, when we pray instead of worry, Paul says there's a peace that surrounds us. So be a prayerful church. Because I, I believe, and you guys know this, and I don't just say this, if we interact on just a normal one-on-one -on -one level, like I truly do believe that Jesus is really doing some neat stuff at our church. 
I don't think he would have us stick around for four years if he didn't have something significant that he wanted to do through us. I believe that our best days are ahead. We have a a meeting tomorrow, 9.30, to sign on finally, after a year, to sign on the dotted line with the Send Relief organization for the Finding Hope Center tomorrow. I mean, it just, who would have ever thought we're the first church, I want you to hear my, good Lord, Ephesians 3.20. We are the first church in all of North America that they have ever signed on to do this with. What? I mean, who would have ever thought And I believe from the pit of my stomach that our best days are ahead of us, that Jesus is still doing exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. But the danger that we have to guard for is the growing pains. The devil doesn't like what's happening here. And he will do whatever he can to divide, to ununite us, and to destroy what Jesus is doing. And so let's choose as a congregation, be united, be joyful, be prayerful, because those are the things that protect what the Lord is choosing to do in this church and through this church. Can I pray for us? God, we love you. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, what a privilege it is for us to gather under the preaching of the Word of God. Lord, I pray that that never becomes a burden, but it's always an opportunity that we have. God, would you protect what you're doing in the midst of this congregation? God, may we always remain humble. Lord, knowing that anything done around us, in us, or through us is not because of us, but it's because of the graciousness of Jesus extended to us. And Lord, you're choosing to allow us to have a front row seat to the story that you're writing here. God, keep us united, keep us joyful, and keep us prayerful. And Lord, I pray now as we sing to you in response to God's word that we give you the praise that you deserve, Lord, echoing those same voices that we heard in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, crying out, holy, holy, holy. Lord, we we join them in giving you the praise that only you deserve. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.